Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey there, joystick wagglers. Can you believe it? We're racing towards the end of Series 2 of Games Master. It's been a fun time on the games rig, but it's almost time to head into the Games Master Academy and hang out with Dexter Fletcher for a series. But we can't round off Series 2 without hearing from you fine folks. So get in touch with your feedback for Series 2 of Games Master by emailing feedback at underconsultation.com with either an MP3 or written word, and it will be featured on the show, which will go out at the end of October. Let us know your favourite episodes, challenges, celebrities, features, and all your least favourite moments in between. Send your message to feedback at underconsultation.com or find us on social media at underconsolepod on Twitter or at under.console on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. to the games rig this is under consultation an episode by episode podcast guide through the uk's greatest video game challenge tv show games master i am one of your hosts luke owen also wanting tips for streets of rage 2 and weak at the knees i am ash versus this episode aired on the 4th of march 1993 the day before my brother's 13th birthday to unlimited no limited still number one at the top of the charts but it's a new entry at the top of the uk movie box office it's under siege it was the final voyage of America's mightiest battleship. What's on this helicopter? This little sweetheart. Miss July 89. God, I love this business. I love you. The party was wild. Love you today. They really knocked them dead. Imagine this arsenal of tactical nuclear weapons falling into the wrong hands. The Pentagon never did. Four minutes ahead of schedule. Damn, I'm good. Now, a team of terrorists have taken over. Wake up the president. But there's just one thing they didn't count on. The cook. Are you like some special forces guy or something? No, I'm just a cook. Oh, my God. 
God, we're going to die. Yes, an action thriller film directed by Andrew Davis, written by J.F. Lawton and starring the man with the impossibly dark hair, Steven Seagal. He plays an ex-Navy SEAL who must stop a group of mercenaries led by far superior actor Tommy Lee Jones on the US Navy battleship USS Missouri. I don't mind Under Siege, you know. I think it's pretty good. I actually prefer Under Siege 2, where they did the same film, but this time it was on a train. Which, interestingly, was less well-received critically than this original film. It was based on a spec script by J.F. Lawton that was originally called Dreadnought. But at first, Steven Seagal turned this film down. Seagal later said he had problems with the role of a character who was at first a bimbo jumping out of a cake getting paired up with him. But he said that in revisions of the script, the role became a character who gradually reveals her intelligence, which feels remarkably progressive for Steven Seagal because, no spoilers, the guy's a bit of a dick. (laughs) But it was a movie that they used to try and make him more mainstream, getting him out of the pure action genre and into a proper acting role, and also help keep it roughly under budget. The way the script was originally written, it would have cost over $100 to make. Oof. Whereas this was more the 30 million. The USS Alabama stood in for most of the Missouri sequences, which is a ship that's actually kept as a kind of working museum. And the USS Drum portrayed the North Korean submarine. It made a lot of use of front projection. I do like front projection sequences. When they're done well, front and rear projection can be great. The one sequence I always yeah. think of is the drop ship in Aliens. Mm, yeah. The crash sequence. That's so well done. But it was renamed from Dreadnought after the original title didn't test well with audiences. And originally, the marketing department wanted to give it a three-word title like other Seagull films. And their choice was Last to Surrender. (laughs) Thankfully, both Lawson and Seagull agreed on this when they said they hated the title and the film ended up being called under siege it did fairly well at the domestic box office pulled in about 15 million went on to make 83.5 million dollars and worldwide 156 million dollars and at the time was the most successful film that had not been screened for any critics prior to its release because that's normally the death knell it's usually a sign that a studio has absolutely no faith whatsoever in a movie if they don't screen it for critics not only was it popular with audiences it did relatively well with most critics Reviewers were very quick to praise Tommy Lee Jones and Gary Busey's performance. And not only that, it was the only Seagal movie to receive an Academy Award nomination, earning two nominations for Best Sound Effects and Best Sound. Now, it didn't win either category, but to get an Academy Award nomination for a Steven Seagal movie, that's something. Yeah, it's at least something. And also, without this movie, we wouldn't have had The Fugitive as it was because Harrison Ford approached and approved Andrew Davis for the director after seeing a rough cut of this film. That's cool. I have rewatched this movie recently, and as early 90s action movies go, it's actually held up okay. Yeah. It's certainly one of the more palatable Steven Seagal movies. He could be a tough guy to watch now, knowing what an utter dickhead he's turned out to be. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. All that head I went into his brain. <laughs> Couple of new releases this week. Bubble Bubble 2 is released on the NES and Fatal Fury 2 gets a release on the Neo Geo. Bubble Bubble, what more do we need to say about it or its sequel? Great game. Go out, play it, have fun. Absolute cracker. Fatal Fury 2, much better than the first game. 
Absolutely it is, yeah. Now, I've had a bit of a sneak preview as to what is in store for the magazines this week because you've sent it across to me. But why don't you let the listeners in on what we're going to discuss here? Well, we've got a proper exclusive from Games Master Magazine on Street Fighter 2, the movie. And this article is entirely factual and not at all balls. Because I thought, if I'm going to do this article, I should send it to you beforehand, because for some reason, you have some level of knowledge of this movie, and in fact are probably one of the people I can think of that is most well appointed to point out how bollocks virtually everything in this article is. Because the article starts, Acme Pictures are currently shooting what should prove to be a box office smash to end all box office smashes. Soon you'll be able to strut on down to your local multiplex and check out Street Fighter 2, the movie. Very little is known about this top-secret project at the moment, so we can't tell you whether it will be based on the Championship Edition, how many special moves will be available, or whether or not it will be coming out on the Mega Drive. Brackets. <laughs> snigger. <laughs> yeah. However, we've received an exclusive leak from the casting department, and here's a provisional list of the stars who will be playing all of the major roles. Now, I'm going to pause there because, first of all, they actually claim that this is going into production with Acme Pictures. Yep. It did not. It does no, not. It did not. I don't even think there is an Acme Pictures. No, no. I think that that's kind of the first clue that this is a big load of bobbins. It is absolute bobbins. But what we get is a cast that is ninety percent bobbins. There's a couple of choices here which make me go, ah, okay. It's also the most insane level of whitewashing I've <laughs> yeah. ever seen out of a joke cast. Let's start at the top, Ryu. The ever-adaptable and indisputably hunky Tom Cruise. The only thing I'd say is if his work ethic then was anything like it is now, he'd have probably learnt how to throw a goddamn fireball because there's a man that is dedicated to do as many of his own stunts and things as possible. So, Luke, by your research, was Tom Cruise ever in line to play Ryu? Uh, No. Okay. No. I mean, I can give you a spoiler. Most of this is going to be no. Okay. So next up, Ken. Dana Carvey. The bloke who plays Garth in Wayne's World, he'll be wearing contacts, obviously. Now, Luke... That's such funny casting. Was Dana Carvey ever in line to play Ken? No, he was not. Not doing well on this casting at the moment, are we? (laughs) No. Guile, Val Kilmer. That's an interesting bit of casting. Because It's it's not true. It's not true, I was about to ask, but (laughs) this one could actually work because Val Kilmer at that time... If you look at the picture they've used there, he had the frosted tips, he had the sticky up hair, and we know he could play an Air Force dude. Exactly. That might not have been bad. The acting range would have been better for certain. <laughs> awkward one, this one. Oh, this is awkward. E Honda, John Candy. Yeah, the note they've written here is typecast as ever, which does feel like it's a really cruel thing to say. However, When I interviewed the directors of the Super Mario Brothers movie, they did consider Danny DeVito for the role of Mario because he is short and fat. Yeah, and also, holy sh**. (laughs) You've literally got a Japanese sumo wrestler, guys. Come on. I I know it's a jokey article, but even taking into account it's a joke, I winced. (laughs) Zangief, Jeff Capes. Okay, that one's actually kind of fun. Because you would want, for Zangief, you would want a dude of Jeff Cape's size and stature. Yeah. You you would want a big, big dude who is muscly and really doesn't actually need to act much. He would mainly need to grunt, be monosyllabic, and crush things. 
I do love the, that line of, like, Jeff Capes in an uncharacteristically crap role. Oh, I mean, Jeff Capes was a legend. Mm-hmm. Chun-Li, another awkward one. Martial arts mistress Cynthia Rothrock, whose action sequences are definitely not sped up honest. <laughs> now, again, whitewashing. Mm-hmm. Blanca, Lou Ferrigno. He's an incredible Hulk. Just in case you hadn't worked out this was a joke list by this point. Yeah. Dol Sim, Ben Kingsley. Yes, because he just played Gandhi. Woof. <laughs> Balrog, Evander Holyfield, because the guy they wanted was in prison, allegedly. <laughs> That's a good line. Vega, John Inman, Nuff said. <laughs> Sagat, Brian Glover, perfectly polished Pat, very aggressive. True in both cases, not sure he's got the stature for Sagat. No. But now the one piece of casting that I actually think is spot the fuck on, M. Bison, Rutger Hauer. That is really, really good. Plays the ultimate rock-hard baddie again. Now next on they do go on to directors. They say directors currently being approached include Paul Verhoeven, Michael Winner, and man of the moment, Quentin Tarantino. Now, Paul Verhoeven, I can in theory see being approached. I know he wasn't. Because <laughs> from what you're saying, there was only ever really one director involved. Yeah, so essentially Edward Pressman, the producer, came on board because he was working with Mattel on a Barbie movie that eventually fell through. Mattel kind of pulled out from it because they were worried that the whoever was going to play Barbie in the movie might at some point have some bad press written about her further down the line. And they were very protective of the Barbie brand. And what they didn't want was for an actor to, you know, fall, fall off a wagon of sorts. And then a headline be written about her where it would be Barbie actor falls off the wagon or, you know, Barbie actor gets drunk in pub or what have you. So they so that fell through. So Edwin Pressman then found out about the Street Fighter pitch instead, which Capcom were looking for. And because it was such a quick turnaround like it was pitched in mid 1993 and they wanted it released for christmas 1994 because they had a deal with uh gi joe he knew he needed to get a a writer that could turn around quickly and be someone he could trust and that's why he turned to steven d'souza so really steven d'souza was the only a writer that was approached and b was the only and he basically said he could do it he will do it if he also gets to direct it so essentially much like the cast absolute bobbins yes although i love the concept of a michael winner street fighter movie with wrinkly worn up face charles bronson as i don't know guile just imagining charles bronson with massive sticky up hair yeah Exactly. Yeah. So that's the other the side of this that, that's a bit bobbins about the casting is that what Edward Pressman told me was that they made two decisions very quickly. Was that they wanted Van Damme to be the lead, they wanted him to be Guile, and they wanted Rao Julia to be M Bison, and that was it. Really. That once they got those two signed on, they were like, no money is being spent elsewhere on this casting because we've got our two leads. It's what we did for, because Edward Pressman was the producer on this as well, it's what we did for Masters of the Universe. Once we had Dolph Lundgren, it was like, we don't actually need to cast anyone else that's a name because we've got the name that we can put on the poster. So everyone else in the cast was just going to be low-level stunt actors, basically, or TV actors looking for work. And Frank Langella, who was just hungry and needed some scenery to chew. Yes, that was the, that was the other bit of casting they had, was they had Dolph Lundgren and, and Frank... 
Thankfully, there is some actual news in this article, none of which is related to Street Fighter, because they point out that the Mario Brothers movie is set for a summer release and features Bob Hoskins and Samantha Mathis and Dennis Hopper, as well as being directed by Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel, the creative forces behind Max Headroom, and the film looks likely to follow a specific kidnapped princess-type plot with a twist or two, probably. Also, there's rumours of a movie based on the Double Dragon games. Don't know about this one. There's an ad in Variety magazine, but British Film Mag Empire doesn't seem to have heard of it. We'll fill you in as soon as someone else fills us in. Obviously, Mario Brothers the movie did come to be and was released and was a film. Mm-hmm. And Double Dragon <laughs> came to be and was a film. It's released in 93 as well. Like Double Dragon would have, Double Dragon would have been pretty much finished by this point. And I would say of these three movies mentioned is the closest to the source material. Oh, absolutely it is, yeah. In te- technically, technically, to go to bat for Street Fighter, it is very close to its source material because its source material is G.I. Joe. It's an incredibly close movie to its source material there. Yeah, all right, I'll let you have that one. <laughs> but having said that, of course, one of our future goals for the Patreon will see us looking at some of these movies. And while I'm excited to look at Street Fighter and I'm excited to look at Mario Brothers. I'm really excited to look at Double Dragon because it's not one that gets a lot of press for very, very good reasons. It's a shit movie, but it's also going to be fun to talk about because it's actually got a fairly good cast. It might also be a place where I can use the very small amount of interviews I did do about that film because it didn't end up being in the book um, because I didn't have enough interviews to paint a full timeline and there's so little written about it and so few interviews that have been done about it that I couldn't paint a full picture. But I, I have got some interviews with some of the people that wrote script for it, so I might be able to actually put those to some use. That'd be cool. I mean, it's <laughs> worth saying that movie was made on the cheap, like not quite <laughs> Roger Corman Fantastic Four levels cheap, but on the cheap. Thank you, lovely. Yes, here we are on the Games Master Oil Rig again. The salty spray licking against our legs with nothing but our protective hoods for comfort. But we can all take warmth and cuddliness from the man who sets the challenges, the Games Master. Hey, guess what? It's a reused intro. This is the intro from episode five. Ash, what was on that episode? Is this just a way to make yourself feel better about sucking at the rumours game from a few episodes back? Because guess what? This is the third time you've asked me this question. And you know what? It's going to be the third time that I say, I've not got a Scooby. (laughs) Well, it was the episode with the pilot wings challenge to open us up. Take that playing Bomberman and the final curly challenge on Arch Rivals, which I'll be honest, like... That being in episode five, the final Curly Challenge seems wild to me at this point. It doesn't feel that long ago, and yet here we are right at the tail end of season two. And as we were discussing the other day, we recorded episode five when we could still sit in a room together. I know, that feels like an age ago at this point. But it's time for our first challenge. Let's find out what we're playing from the Games Master. Welcome to the Games Week. The first of this week's Jolly Japes is a romp through the perilous world of the geriatric superhero Captain Dynamo. I'd like you to guide this um, aged sprite through the fourth level of the game in one and a half minutes without losing a single life. So prepare to force those arthritic limbs into action. I feel like poor old Captain Dynamo gets a lot of abuse in this episode because they're constantly calling him a fat lad and things like that. And Games Master starts age shaming him. Which I think is the cyborg calling the kettle black, really. (laughs) It is. 
Games Master's no spring chicken himself. We saw Captain Dynamo a couple of weeks ago in the consultation zone, and I think you've got more memories of it than I have. Well, yeah, because I was still owning the Amstrad CPC at that point, and the two ninety nine budget tapes were cheap. But yes, he's an ageing superhero brought out of retirement to recover a haul of stolen diamonds from the trap-invested rocket ship of the villainous Austin Von Flyswatter. And I did that in one take, and yet last time that took me at least four attempts to get through, so <laughs> I'm improving, Luke. But the goal is to collect as many diamonds as possible in each stage and then enter the teleportation unit at the top. It's complicated by various mechanical hazards and creatures. Yeah, it looks decent enough watching the, the playthrough of this. Looks all right. Simple Amiga stuff, basically. That's not, I, I felt like I was downplaying the Amiga there, actually, because the Amiga's a great console, but this does feel like it is simple Amiga stuff. No, it's a vertical platformy game. It's of similar ilk to Top Banana, except, you know, doesn't cause seizures. <laughs> it's playable. And yes, looks like quite a fun little game. Helping the senile superhero evade the tortuous traps on this challenge is a young lady from Cheshire. Please welcome Emily Taylor. Welcome, Emily. Now, Emily, do you think video games are played more by boys than girls? Um, yeah. Yeah, why, why do you think that is? Well, I don't know. I think it's just one of those things like football. Most people think that's a boy sport, and I think people think video games is for boys. But as far as you're concerned, it's for girls as well. Yeah. But helping the senile superhero evade the torturous traps on this challenge is a young lady from Cheshire. It's Emily Taylor. Wearing an excellent Chicago Bulls hoodie as well. I had that exact same note right here. That was a banger of a top. That was nice work. You can probably still buy a top like that today. Oh, yeah. And she's about to head into a couple of glory years of fandom as well for the Chicago Bulls. Oh, yes, yeah, because they do it twice, don't they? Yeah. Because I've got the Chicago Bulls <laughs> trainers that are to celebrate the fact that they did two sets of triple crowns. The interview that she has with Dominic Diamond is kind of typical of, funny enough, actually, you know, one we had very early on in Series 2, which is the, you are a girl that is playing a game. Ergo, I do have to bring up mostly boys play games. It, it feels... We were talking about this last week with the the, the journos they had on. Like it's it's a, a kind of a standard first question. You must play games all day long. It, it kind of sucks that all of the female contestants that we have had on this have just had the same question, which is, why don't girls play games more? You're a girl. I'm not sure they've all had it. I think it's certainly a, a softball question that Dominic throws to the younger ones because, as we've discussed before. A lot of these people are not great on camera because this is a different age before everyone had a smartphone. So he's throwing an easy question to them. And thankfully, it's a question that she can answer. And she answers it actually really well, where she draws parallels with football and other sports. Mm -hmm. And I, I like this answer rather than yeah. what we've had before, which is don't know. Yeah. I and mean, she just says, it's just one of those things. I think it's a really smart way of looking at it. It is. Plus, also, we don't know what other questions he may have asked her. And again, as we've talked about before, this is just how the narrative plays out in the edit. It's Tom Watson from Renegade. Welcome, Tom. Good evening, Dominic. Now, Tom, have you got any tips for Emily in the deepest voice you can muster? Well, I'd just say she's got to really watch out for the uh, creepies on the platforms. This is a one and a half minute challenge, one life. She can't afford any mistakes and it is a tough one. 
Okay, as Tom said, Emily has one and a half minutes to get from the start of the level to the end of the level. Tom Watson from Renegade is in the booth. He says the creepies hide in the platform, so you need to watch out for those. And this is a bit of a tough one. It's only a minute and a half to get through the entire level. And it's not a it's not a speedy old game, is Captain Dynamo. No, it's not. It does lollop along like a lot of Amiga platformers. And also, it must be pointed out, this is advice he offers in the deepest voice he can muster. <laughs> <laughs> but also this is where the shaming begins because Emily gets underway and starts to make her way up the vertical level and Tom points out that Dynamo does have a way of killing enemies by squashing them and Dom chips in with... Because, he, because he's fat, isn't he? Because he's, he's fat, he squashes, he squashes them, basically. That's because he's fat. <laughs> <laughs> It is fat shaming, guys. Exactly. I, as, as a slightly chunkier guy who used to be a lot, lot chunkier, yeah, this is fat shaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she does really, really well. She avoids a series of spikes. She clearly knows the levels. As she gets to a spring launcher and she waits, she knows there are some compression traps up ahead that would squash her against the wall. She's got great control and great timing for this. Like she knows, as you say, like she knows when to wait. She knows when to move. There's a moment towards the top where she's got to get a pixel perfect jump like you have to be in the exact position to make it and she doesn't make it first time and she, i don't think if she makes it second time but she does get up there and that that really does feel like pure pixel perfect precision yeah it's a set of spinning shurikens and you have to jump up there at the exact right moment and immediately duck because mm. the shurikens will fly overhead and then you walk along a bit then you duck a bit then you walk along a bit and boom you're done it but she avoids those she avoids poison gas she avoids a set of guillotines and because of the faltering over the shurikens she's got less than 15 seconds on the clock but she just plods on and doesn't get flustered she takes out a few more villains she squashes a slug monster and boom jumps into the level exit two seconds left on the clock emily that was amazing i thought this was one of the toughest challenges we had especially with just one life were you worried at all? Yeah, very. But what were some of the difficult bits in it? Um, then? Well, it was the part where the two spikes were crossing and I just I missed it the first few goes, but I did it in the end. Yeah, it looked a bit hairy there to me. Yeah. Dominic thought it was going to be one of the toughest challenges they've ever have. Emily was very measured, said she missed a few spikes in the first times and it did get a bit hairy at times, but yeah, really, really got through that. I, I really enjoyed it. Now... This is the second time in recent history that the word hairy has come up. Yes. And the first time it came up, you, Luke, mm -hmm. implied that it was Dominic being filthy. I did. Now, do you think he's being filthy here? Not on this one, no, because he didn't say it gets a bit hairy down there. See, I'm now of the opinion, because spoilers, he uses the word again. I think hairy is just a word he uses now. Mm. I think you owe 1993 Dominic an apology. Well, if I ever meet him, I will do. Maybe. Yet another happy camper leaps enthusiastically back to his cabin. And three more experts line up to thrust their opinions on the waiting world in this week's reviews. We also get some more recycled footage uh, from the show as Dominic Diamond refers to the player as a man as they leave. Yeah. Oh, dear. But as we pointed yeah. out, it's not easy to do retakes on something like this because you can't exactly just hop back to an oil rig or disused power station or whatever the hell it was at that point. But... Great challenge, well-deserving of the joystick, and what a marvellous pairing it made with that brilliant Chicago Pools jumper. 
This week we have an exclusive television review of Star Fox, the most talked about game of the year. It's the first game to feature the new SFX chip, a revolutionary gadget which allows arcade quality scrolling, rotating and 3D jiggery-pokery. The game itself is a scrolling shooting spectacular and we've assembled our own star reviewing panel. Nick Watby, editor of Super Action, Games Master's chief playtester Dougie Johns and NMS main man Tim Boone give the lowdown on what should be the game of the year. Having Nintendo and it's got something to look forward to. Loads of action and atmosphere, and overall an absolutely amazing game that left me somewhat aroused. For 60 quid you're getting something which is just about as good as anything you'll find in the arcades, and considering those machines cost thousands, you're quitting. There have been many games in the past trying to be like Star Fox, but none have yet succeeded. Star Fox takes it to another level and really blows away anything that's going to be The only sort of criticisms I've got of the game is that it's really hard. I mean, for example, we had the game in the office for one week and none of the guys could get off level three. This game is rock. Star Fox is a nigh on faultless game. Amazing graphics, amazing sound, just the right difficulty setting. Basically, it's like having virtual reality in your own home. SFX, more like SEX, buy it now. But as great as that was, Ash, we have got something we've not had on Games Master before. This isn't your typical review zone, folks. This is a review zone special because they're only looking at one game. And that game they're looking at is f***ing Star Fox. To give it its full title, and indeed its international title, because of course by the time it gets released over here, it's no longer Fox, it's a wing. And then mm -hmm. for the Nintendo 64, it becomes Lilac Wars, which really doesn't make any sense. But there we go. This is Star Fox, and this is worth dedicating an entire review section to, because Sonic, Sonic 2... Mario World, they're all amazing games, but they are more of the same. They are runny, jumpy, platformy. This is proper 3D on a home console. It's accessible. It is, by comparison to what was around at the time, arcade quality, as our panel says. Absolutely. And this panel includes Nick from Super Action, Tim Boone from NMS, and previous guest on this show, Dougie Johns of Games Master. They're just dropping all pretense that he was actually a contestant from episode one now. Uh, they're just basically openly saying, yeah, no, he does work for this show. Yeah, but he also says that the Nintendo owners have got something to look forward to, lots of action, atmosphere, and overall an absolutely amazing game that left him somewhat aroused i mean an arousal very much seems to be the order of the day for this review going by tim's final comments tim's right as well this game is art because i i played it recently when it got released on the snes mini and it's not the i, I might just be cack at it but it's not the easiest game in the world I don't find this game that difficult because Tim says that they had it in the office for a week and no one could get off level three. This game is rock. I completed this game on the Super Nintendo the first time mm. round. I completed it since. I've completed it on the SNES Mini and I think I've completed it on the virtual console on the Switch. But I don't know if that means I'm good at the game or if I've just got some sort of muscle memory because this is one of those games which I never exchanged in not until i got rid of my super nintendo the first time round. from the moment i got it at some point after its release it wasn't a day of release game for me i waited until i could get it second hand because this was a pricey game mm -hmm. those super rate fx chips aren't cheap mate <sighs> definitely not any excuse to ramp up the price but <laughs> i kept coming back to it for the same reason i kept coming back to star fox 64 
for the same reason I come back to Star Fox 3DS on the Nintendo 3DS. There's just something about this game that really gets me. I'm not a flight simulator guy. There aren't many 3D shooty games that I like like this, but this series just works for me. That opening level of this first game is just one of my favorite moments from the 16-bit era. Yeah, I mean, as you know, a Mega Drive owner, I never had this when I was a kid. A, fr- a friend, a family friend did have it. So I remember staying over there's one night and them, you know, showing it to me and being like, oh my God, this game looks absolutely incredible. But I've I'd never had it. I never even owned it when I owned my SNES later on in life. I mean, and this might just be, this is very much an admission here, that the only Star Fox game within the universe that I've owned is Star Fox Adventures on the GameCube, which is not a very good game. I mean, that one started as a completely different franchise, Dinosaur yeah. World. And... I still have a soft spot because I really like the characters in Star Fox. Uh, Star Fox Assault, also for the GameCube, is a bit more of a more traditional Star Fox game. It was also developed in collaboration with Namco. And then you've got Star Fox Zero something or other, which was the Wii U. And then which you... is very bad. Yeah, that wasn't great. And then you've got Star Fox being tagged on to the Switch release of whatever the flying star shooty game was it came with toys because that's the only reason i want it is be even now is because it's got an r-wing model with it yeah and i do like the r-wing design i was gonna say most of my star fox knowledge comes from super smash brothers to talk a bit about the history of the game the origins of star fox or Starwing, go all the way back to the NES with Nintendo working with Argonaut Software. They developed a prototype on the NES originally called NES Glider, which was inspired by their earlier 8-bit game called Star Glider, which is a game I owned on the Amstrad CPC-464 and which I still have the tie-in novella for that came Mm. with the game. Because games like that couldn't have cutscenes, they wrote little novels to go with it. And it's, it's pretty good fiction. But they created this and said to Nintendo that this was as good as it could get unless they were allowed to design custom hardware to make the Super Nintendo better at processing 3D. Nintendo went, okay, and hired chip designers to make the Super FX chip, which is referred to as the SFX chip in this review, purely, I think, so this joke can be made at the end of the review that we'll get to. But this was the first 3D graphics accelerator in a consumer product. It was so much more powerful than the standard processor of the SNES that development teams joked that the SNES was just a box to hold the chip. (laughs) Argonaut did a lot of the base programming for the game's engine and the character and designs were done in-house in Nintendo. The main game design was done by Miyamoto and Iguchi and the characters were designed by Imamura, music composed by Hirasawa. And what you have there is you have the core Nintendo creative team. Like you look at some of the games that they've produced over the years, the Marios, the Zelda, you've got such a concentrated force of talent there. And the thing is, Miyamoto, when he signed on to the project, said he wanted it from the beginning to start animal characters because he just wasn't interested in making another series with conventional heroes of humans, robots, monsters, and superheroes. He wanted to do something a bit different. He decided he wanted a fox as a main character and said that he'd always planned to use the English word fox instead of the Japanese word kitsune. 
And Imamura used Japanese folklore as an inspiration to add a bird and a hare as the other two protagonists, and also a toad, the inspiration for which came from a staff member of Nintendo EAD who used a toad as his personal mascot. Miyamoto created several puppets and photographed them to use as artwork for the cover of the Star Fox game, and he was a fan of English puppet dramas such as Thunderbirds, so he wanted the game cover to feature puppets of that style. And it shows they look like they could be out of a Jerry Anderson production. It was released as Starwing in Europe due to the similarity of the title Star Fox to the name of a German company called Starvox. Now that's interesting because I always thought it was changed because there was an 8-bit budget game also called Star Fox. Uh, right, okay. But this is Nintendo and they probably just didn't give a shit about that. There was an interesting thing that you mentioned there that you know they didn't want it to feature human characters. They wanted to very much focus on uh, animals and stuff. The recent Nintendo Giga League that came out revealed that there was meant to be a human character in there. There was meant to be a... a, a black human pilot i mean in fairness it is star fox 2 but i still think that it was it's interesting that they were very much looking at this is animals but then were looking to add in a human character down the line that really blows my mind because they've introduced a number of new characters since star fox and in fact at one point peppy gets demoted from being part of the main star Fo- team star fox and is now just driving the minivan essentially He's, yeah, he becomes the soccer mom of the team. <laughs> but Star Fox was released to amazing, almost near universal acclaim. From April 30th to May 2nd, 1993, there was a Super Star Fox weekend competition taking place across the United States where all competitors received a Star Fox pin and those who accumulated a really good store got t-shirts and other prizes. In the UK, it was known as the Starwing Challenge to account for the change in branding and was held in gaming shops across the country on the 29th of May 1993. Now, after the original competition, a limited number of the game cartridges created for the competition were sold through the pages of Nintendo Power magazine, which were listed in spring 1994 and were available as a mail-away for $45. It features a time-limited single-player mode on modified stages, as well as an exclusive bonus level... And the startup screen says official competition cart. Now that, thankfully, because it was sold, does exist out there. You can get the ROMs of that quite easily. Mm. But Doug says that this game is nigh on perfect and claims that the difficulty setting is just right. And Tim ends this off with the killer line of the feature. SFX, more like SEX. SFX, more like S-E-X, buy it now. That dude needs to get laid. (laughs) Well, 94% for Star Fox on the SNES. Yeah, I mean, just what a game. Absolutely fantastic game. Watching this episode made me maybe pick up a joypad and want to play this game because it reminds me of even just playing that first level, just the R-Wing launch sequence and going into Canaria and the music and just... Oh, yeah, this game is my jam. Well, I really hope after that incredible first challenge and after that really, really great review that we've got an excellent feature coming up. Oh, no, wait, it's... This year, the buzzword is most definitely CD. Three systems are out now. Philips CDI, Commodore CDTV and PC CD-ROM. But with Sega's Mega CD-ROM coming out next month, some of you may be wondering what the whole malarkey is about. Well, we've got Les Crane, chairman of Software Toolworks, one of the pioneers of CD software, to tell us exactly what it's about. When you have a disk-based system, you're storing the material that you want to store, the data, on a magnetic medium like a tape or a floppy disk. And the space is extremely limited. 
When you're using CD, you're using a, an actual laser light to read the bits and bytes of information off a laser disc. And the amount of data information that can be stored is thousands of times greater. Okay, here's the deal. CD-ROM means read-only memory. So when you put a CD-ROM player in your machine, all you can do is read off of that disc, but you can't write to it. In other words, you can't interact with it. Now, Philips has their CDI system, which is CD interactive, so that you can be involved to a certain degree with the CD-ROM disc. Didn't miss by much. The Commodore version of that is called CDTV. You could theoretically have a movie, for example, in which there would be several different endings, and you could get to play a part in the movie and choose which ending you wanted to go for. But what about the games themselves? If you can imagine that an old floppy disk or a, or a cartridge that you put in the old Sega or the old Nintendo system held maybe a page worth of material and a cd disc holds a library's worth of material if you're playing an adventure game can you imagine how many thousands of rooms and thousands of characters and the graphics and the sound and the full motion video pictures that can be put on those games they're going to be a heck of a lot more fun to play it's all just a game. <laughs> oh, no, my episode uh, must have been missing that. It didn't have a feature. <laughs> I mean, I downloaded the episode from YouTube, cut this video section out, and then watched it again just so this bit didn't exist. Yeah, you are not keen on this. Before we got on mic to record this, you were very much against this feature on the buzzword of 1993 CD. Um, basically, to give you an overview of the feature, talking about the CDI, Commodore CDTV and the CD-ROM. But really, we've got this lad, Les Crane, to tell us why CDs are brilliant. And he talks about how, you know, with the Commodore, you could theoretically have movies with multiple endings. And uh, he's heard that Sega and Nintendo cartridges are already old. And if a cartridge can hold one page of information, a CD holds an entire library. And he gives off some very dodgy maths. This is not how this works. Les, stop using your mouth. <laughs> he tries to explain how CDs work, but this is kind of like taking drunk histories and making drunk technology. This is a drunk person trying to explain CD-ROMs. He starts by saying that with a disc-based system, you're storing the data on a magnetic medium, like a disc or a tape. Luke, is a tape a disc? It is not. Thank you. But, you know, he is right, the space is limited. But when you use a CD, you're using a laser light to read the bits and bytes off a laser disc. But it's not a laser disc, it's a CD. They are different formats. <laughs> and the amount of data that can be stored on this is thousands of times greater. No, it's not. The most common capacity at this point, and for most of the rest of the life of the floppy disk, was 1.44 megabytes. That, uh, yep, that's right. Capacity of a CD? On average, 650 megabytes, allowing for appropriate amounts of error correction. That's not thousands. That is roughly 450 times. But, you know... That's close enough to a thousand. It's not even halfway <laughs> there. <laughs> he then comes out with CD-ROM meaning read-only memory. This is factual. He gets this bit right. But it means that when you put a player in your machine, all you can do is read off of that disc. I mean, yes, read-only memory. You can't write to it or interact with it. 
But now Philips has their CDI system, CD Interactive. So you can be involved to a certain degree with the CD. I mean, f***ing hell. <laughs> it is nonsense. But will the games be any good? This all looks incredibly enticing, but I must admit, up till now, all the CD games I've seen have been a little bit ropey. The potential's certainly there. Let's hope they use it. Thankfully, Dom appears with a moment of clarity, saying, but what about the games themselves? Uh, yeah, I, I like Dom's refreshing honesty at the end here, where he's like, to be honest, the CD games that we've seen so far have been a bit ropey. He does say it all looks enticing, while that scene from Night Trap is playing in the background, <laughs> which I thought was immensely entertaining work from the editing team there. But dear Lord, this guy, Les... He reminds me of Gil Gunderson in The Simpsons. <laughs> this is a dude that's living in his car. And why did they get him on? Because I know he made CD-ROMs, but also he's from the company that made Chessmaster. Chessmaster is not leading the way of multimedia capacity. But Ash, he knows CDs. He knows that it could do thousands times more than your average floppy disk in their magnetic strips like cassettes. Well, clearly he knows the market so well, that's why he predicts that the CDI and the Amiga CDTV will clearly take over the market and make Sega and Nintendo redundant. Oh, wait, that's not what happened, because guess what? They were shit. <laughs> because they didn't do any of the things he said that they were going to do. Well, let's see if we can try and cheer you up with our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? Time for a bit of um, physical exertion, I think. I'm sure you're all aware by now how partial I am to a game of association football. So I make no apologies for choosing Striker as my second challenge. Two one-minute halves to produce an entertaining encounter. At least Gates Master's refreshingly honest about the fact that he really likes to play football. What position do you reckon he plays? As goalkeeper. That feels like an unfair advantage, really, especially <laughs> if he's still got that mounted machine gun from last episode. <laughs> Bloody hell. You're right, it has cheered me up a little bit, although that feature is still lingering like a fart in a spacesuit. <laughs> This was one of the first iterations of the game, but certainly wouldn't be the last. It would also come out on the Mega Drive. It came out on the Amiga, the CD32, the Atari ST and the PC. And it even got a release of sorts for the CDI. Hmm. Uh, must have used all of that CD-ROM <laughs> and the thousands and times more uh, balls to it. <laughs> library of content. There were also some unreleased ports. A game titled Striker 95 was in development for the Jaguar but never released, as well as a title that was being developed for the abandoned Panasonic M2, the follow-up to the 3DO. The last title under the name was released for the PlayStation and the Dreamcast in the year 2000 as Striker Pro 2000. Not one of the titles that's most fondly remembered today, like your kickoff or your FIFA before it came Loot Crate Madness. But I remember Striker, and I remember having a good time with it. So it was nice to see it here. It is a fun game. It's definitely more in the sensible soccer speed. Yeah, I it's I mean like my first note of the game itself is like hell, this is fast. But it feels like it's a football game that in just a year is just gonna get completely overshadowed. Like a lot of these football games that we're seeing in series two and you know, saw in series one as well, are all gonna get trounced and just gonna have this large looming FIFA International World Soccer cloud just that is gonna loom over all 
of them and make them all feel fairly irrelevant because everyone just puts their focus onto FIFA. I mean, they did try and hang on. They did have a couple of tie-ins. In 1995, bizarrely, they had Striker World Cup Special, and that was released for the 3DO. But yeah, FIFA would start to dominate, and your kickoffs, and pretty much anything except Sensible Stalker, disappeared for a good long while until Konami kind of tried to take the crown off of FIFA with International Superstar Soccer. Yeah. And that was almost as big a playground fight, in my area at least, as Nintendo versus Sega. As was mine, mate. For this challenge, young Ben McCluskey is taking on one of the greatest left footers since Pope John Paul I. Aston Villa and England winger, Tony Daly. Welcome, Ben. Now, Tony, I know you've had a bit of problem with the legs since you've been on the camp. Yeah, that's right. I've been a bit of training this morning and a bit of scaffolding fell on me. So, uh, big apologies to Big Ron for that one. Um, listen, we know you've got some of the best ball control in the Premier League. What kind of a game are we going to see from you? What team are you playing? Well, I'm um, England and it's all out attack, I'm afraid. Right, Ben, young man, what team are you playing then? Well, I'm playing Italy. And what, what type of game are we going to see from you? He's very, very good, this guy. Well, I might do a few passes, but I'm going to try and score and cream him, really. But yeah, we're playing striker. We've got two one-minute halves. It's Ben McCluskey taking on Tony Daly of Aston Villa fame. Dominic says that, oh no, some scaffolding fell on Tony on the rig. What's all this about? I don't know, because, spoilers, I took, a look at my, I took a look at my copy of the book to see what was going on, and I couldn't find anything there. But I suppose there is a chance it was kind of a dangerous set. He may have slipped and fallen or twisted his leg or something, because, yeah, the excuse is he was doing some training on the rig and some scaffolding fell, and Dom looks at the screen and apologises to Big Ron. <laughs> At that point, Dom is probably lucky to have his kneecaps intact. But he's playing as England, so he is all out attack, while very quiet and shy Ben is playing as Italy, and he's just going to try and score. And uh, bless him, he does try. He does try, but this is a rarity we have here because we have a celebrity that's good at a game, and not a shooting alley game like Josie last week and like others in the past. This is a celebrity who is genuinely good at video games he certainly is i mean good at football games at least which certainly matches up with his career he joined his hometown club aston villa and made his senior debut at 17 so he got started early and that was back in 1985 he played for them for 10 seasons nine at the highest level and played in their 1994 league cup final triumph where they defeated man united at wembley he was capped seven times for England between 91 and 92 under Graham Taylor. And after making his full debut in a 1-1 draw with Poland, he was chosen for the squad of the uh, European Championships in 1992. And while he played in two of England's three games there, he never played for England again after that. Aww. But starting at 17 and having as rocketing career as he had is pretty impressive, but nowhere near as impressive as his performance on this game because... This kid does not stand a chance. We'll go through the first half here because Tony is shooting upwards. So he technically has the advantage here because this isn't like FIFA where it's at an angle or it's not like Super Soccer where it can sort of spin round. This very much is. If you're shooting upwards, you do have the advantage. You can see where you're going. And he does do that, you know, to his advantage. He scores very early on. Uh, poor old Ben makes a very terrible goal kick, which allows Tony to pick up a second goal. Well, at halftime here, it's 2-0 to Tony Daly. If you want to see if Ben McCloskey can claw his way back, join us after the break. 
Kellogg's would like you to know that they don't make cereals for anyone else. So only Kellogg's on the box will... do. The search is over. The Super FX heralds the future of gameplay. Powered by the unique Super FX Accelerator chip, Starwing, the first of a new breed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In true advertising tradition, we've got some cute, cuddly animals to give their views on deliciously different Vimto Cordial. So, how do you feel about the vitamin C? Perhaps you'd comment on the rich fruit blend. Go on, let us in on the secret ingredient. Slight hitch, animals don't actually talk or drink Vimto, so you'll have to take my word for it, but I'm not quite so cuddly. Vimto, you just need the bottle to try it. Welcome back. We're in the middle of a great match. Tony Daly playing England is 2-0 up against young Ben McCluskey playing Italy. They're just getting ready to kick off for the second half. So, Tony, if you're ready, off you go. And coming out of the ad break, I thought, ah, well, Ben is shooting up now. Now it's going to be his advantage. He's going to do much better. Nope. This is all still Tony. This is all still England. He scores again, and then he scores again. And then he scores again. This poor kid. Oh my God. I mean, this 5-0 defeat, this is the sort of stuff that England are normally on the receiving end of. When he said he was playing as England and going all out attack, I did think at the time that he was talking about fantasy football because realistically that's what it was a lot of the time with England. But man alive, he dominates this game and I reckon there is a very simple reason why he has mastered the aftertouch in this game because mm. after you take a shot in striker you can use the d-pad to curve the ball left and right 
And oh, he yeah. uses that and he knows what he's doing with it because he scores goals off that trick where the ball veers around the goalie. It's not so much aftertouch as the football equivalent of a drone missile. Yeah. There can also be a little guy with like a set of joysticks controlling this remotely from the back of a van because this ball just weaves its way around the pitch. And you can see that Ben doesn't really know that either because his best chance he has is when he blasts it at the keeper twice and the keeper just sort of parries it back towards him. But there's no control to the shot. He is just hitting it directly at the keeper. I'll be honest, the other big issue with this game, Tony does a lot of fouls. The referee just doesn't pick up on the game picks up on them, but the referee never stops it because the they've got these little kind of LED boards that come up saying the ref needs glasses and stuff like that. But yeah, Tony kicks the shit out of that kid's players. <laughs> I felt so bad for him because it's actually kind of a flip reversal of end of series one when we had the Emlyn Hughes international soccer challenge with Emlyn Hughes and poor old Emlyn got absolutely embarrassed on that game, got good beaten proper good by that little kid who just kept scoring and scoring and scoring and that was all very fun because Emlyn's there going like oh no I've been scored against again but here this poor kid just sort of sits there in silence as this grown man just keeps slotting skulls past him again and again and again Tony took it seriously. Yeah. And it says a lot. We've gone through that entire challenge. And realistically, I don't think we've mentioned anything that either Dominic or Jim Douglas has said. And that's because realistically, they didn't say much other than, oh, maybe Ben. No, wait, Tony's got the ball again. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so one-sided. That was a brilliant game, Ben. I think it was your players that were at fault. What was that? They had too much spaghetti for lunch or something? No, they are just too slow, really. The boys let you down in a day, Ben, but you put up a good fight anyway. Yeah. All right, now, Tony, you had a predatory instinct in front of goal. You didn't let anything slip today. That's right. I think that's answered my critics saying about my finishing in front of goal, I think. And in the post-match, Dom says he thinks Ben's players were at fault and asks if they had too much spaghetti for lunch or something because, hey, Italy stereotypes. Ben says, nah, they were just too slow. He seems so disappointed. Yeah. Meanwhile, Dom turns to Tony and says he had a predatory instinct and Tony shows no remorse and says he hopes it answers his critics about his finishing in front of goal. It's like, yeah, never mind the kid that you've just destroyed the hopes and dreams of and condemned to a life of bullying. You've proven your critics wrong. Although... He was really good at the game. <laughs> he was very good at the game. Like, against Emlyn Hughes, Ben would have probably won. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But for the impressive display, he's won Games Master's own charity shield, the Games Master Golden Joystick. So, Luke, I can see you flopped it open again. What does your tome say? Well, Star Riggers 2 features Tony Daly. Dominic Diamond writes, We've had a lot of brilliant games players on Games Master. It was very rare, however, that the celebrities were brilliant. Tony Daly, the Aston Villa and England winger, par excellence, was an exception. For a start, he was wearing round Armani glasses exactly like mine, which endeared him to me immediately. His skill as a footballer soon began to shine as he played striker on the Super Nez. He gave us a flurry of daring runs down the wing, an orgy of crunching ball, winging tackles, and a celebration of the art of goal scoring as he trounced his opponent 5-0 in one of the most one-sided contests ever seen on the show. Tony was a quiet bloke by nature, but he did all his talking on the pitch, Brian, and sent us all over the moon. Games playing skills, I need to count this now. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10! 10 stars for games playing skills and 3 stars for personal niceness. Hello, Games Master. Hello, young scamp. 
how can I brighten up your miserable little life? I'm populous on the Mega Drive. Is there a cheat to take me to any of the levels? There is indeed, young man. When entering the level code, enter the number of the level and then the word bit. So for level 145, you enter 145 bit. Got that? Thanks a lot. Our first kid wants a level select cheat on Populous. Uh, you just need to add bit to the end of a number. So, for example, 145 bit. And on level 145, apparently, the floor is lava. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about Populous 2. Populous, I'd say it's more of the same, but technically less of the same because it predates Populous, <laughs> including slightly less exaggerations by Peter Molyneux. How can I win at Streets of Rage 2? Frankly, young man... That sort of question offends my intellect and doesn't deserve to be answered. Um, next, please. Now, this second kid intrigued me somewhat because he wanted to win on Streets of Rage 2. And I thought to myself, all right, define win. Like, what does win mean? Are you looking for cheats? Are you looking for tips, hints? Are you looking for ways to beat your mates in the one-on-one -on -one fighting bit? Are you just looking for some level select codes? Turns out, Gamesmaster doesn't give a shit and tells him to fuck off. Yeah, this offends Gamesmaster's intellect and doesn't deserve to be answered. I almost get the feeling that for all the prompting they've done with the consultation zone, this is one where they actually just let the kid speak his mind and they were like, <laughs> well, we know what we're going to do with that one. <laughs> that can go in in place of a chicken. <laughs> or Auntie Marisha. No, nothing can go in place of Auntie Marisha. Hello, Gamesmaster. On Zelda 3... I found a locked chest in the blacksmith's hut in Dark World, and I can't work out what to do with it. I'm mildly surprised that you haven't been able to work this one out. If you take the chest to the middle-aged thief in the Great Desert and Night World, he'll open it for you, revealing a magic bottle. Super, thank you. And our third and final kid is stuck on Zelda 3. He's got the locked chest uh, from the blacksmith's hut, but he doesn't know how to open it. Well, Gamesmaster's mildly surprised uh, by this. You need to take it to the middle-aged thief and he'll open it up for you. I was surprised of the description of the thief as middle-aged, but then I realised that actually that's the exact sort of description a Nintendo game would give a character. <laughs> yeah. Young boy, middle-aged thief, old crone, <laughs> startled chicken. But that was that. More delicious pearls of wisdom for us to chew over. Yeah, we're just having a look. Very sadly, I don't think there is a... We're recording this during the week of Games Done Live online because obviously they can't do it. They can't do Summer Games Done quickly, properly this year. But there is no link to the past run uh, uh, at this year's Summer GDQ. Uh, we've got like Twilight Princess. We've got Link's Awakening in Zelda 2. But... Yeah, not even a randomizer, which usually seems like a bit of a staple of a GDQ event. Ah, clearly lockdown has affected people in many different ways. It has. Well, that's enough hints, tips and cheats. I think it's time for our final challenge. Let's head on over to Dominic Diamond to find out what we're doing. Now for our final challenge, it's time for the second semi-final of our special magazine challenge on Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Last week, Dave Goodyear from Mega Drive Advanced Gaming emerged triumphant. Please welcome tonight's two journalistic competitors, Paul Mellerick from Mega and Dean Mortlock from Sega Power. Welcome, Dean. All right. Okay, first of all, Paul, now I've seen you in action on Sonic the Hedgehog 1 and you were quite smart on that. What do you think of the sequel? 
Um, well, I'm quite confident I can beat Dean. All right, well, Dean, what have you got to say to that, then? Um, well, he's confident, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to send him back to Mega with his tail between his legs. Couple of confident lads we've got here today. Yeah, but will their confidence be intact once they find out what level they'll be playing? I guess we go over to Games Master to find out. This week, I decided to go for the speed challenge on the first level of the chemical plant zone. Select your route with care, as some are considerably shorter than others. Good luck. And this is where this tournament really kicked up a gear for me. I kind of wished it was like really, you know, spread over multiple, multiple, multiple weeks. But as soon as he said it was the chemical plant zone, it's not Emerald Hill zone again. It is still a speed challenge, but it's a speed challenge on chemical plant zone, which has got so many different routes. I was like, oh, I am absolutely in for this one now. I am in for this one. And also, I don't know about you, but the Chemical Plant Zone music is some of my favourite in that entire game. So, so great. And yeah, this is not an easy set of levels the chemical plant zone because of all these tubes because of all these pipes that lead different places it's actually really easy to almost put yourself back at the beginning of the level if you just take the wrong pipe at one moment in time absolutely and if you find yourself stuck or like you know you can get caught just on the those platforms that are long and sort of then go into a diagonal and then go into a straight and then go back into a diagonal and just sort of move around. You can get stuck on those areas for quite some time waiting for those slow-ass things to move. You can also actually get crushed by them. They can kill you. Yeah. And she put in such a splendid performance last week. We've got her back again. Jane Goldman from GameZone. Welcome back, Jane. Hello. Now, Jane, a bit different from the level last week. Yes, it is. Um, I'm sure the guys know exactly what they're doing here, but my little gem for this week is hang on to some rings. Um, we don't, usually don't say so in the speed challenges, but this time it's such a dangerous level. They really might need some. But you know what? As she did such a splendid job last week, she's back again and joining Dom in the commentary position, it's Jane Goldman in the same outfit. <laughs> who does have the very good advice of hanging on to some rings if you get them, because this isn't like the Emerald Hill Zone. This isn't like a level that you can just completely power through and you'll probably be fine. Some of the badniks do hide around in various areas. Some of the badniks, like the little spider grabber things, will just grab you while you're running. So you do want to make sure you have a good collection of rings because you don't want to die while trying to do this challenge. I uh, I, I mean, I, obviously I love Sonic 2, but when I got the review copy for Sonic Mania, and I literally got the review copy the day, and I, I want to say the day before it came out to review, I actually got it the evening before it came out. You know, when people tell you those horror stories about game journalism, it really is that bad at times. Although I will say, I can think of far worse games to have to play through the night than Sonic Mania. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it was. It's just I got the review copy at like 10 p.m., you know, and I've got to get the review out first thing in the morning. So uh, I had to play through it you know, fairly quickly, which is good because it's a speedy game. Yeah. Can you imagine if you'd had the same deadline, but the game that arrived at 10 p.m. was Duke Nukem Forever? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or Rise of the Robots. I got that and I was playing through and I really enjoyed playing through the Green Hill Zone level. And I was like, oh, this is wonderfully nostalgic. Um, can't wait to see what new level comes up. When the chemical plant zone came up i was was like oh i don't want another new level i don't want a new level at all i just want i want chemical plant zone i want some more of the old classic levels because i am that basic bitch and i just and i loved playing that through the first stage but when it flips round 
to the second half of that, the second stage of Sonic Mania Chemical Plant Zone, where they've got the bouncing ooze, is so much fun. And it leads to a, a boss fight that legit had me busting a gut laughing. Spoilers if you want to get into, if you haven't played Sonic Mania yet. The end boss of Chemical Plant Zone is Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. That threw me for a loop. I love it, it's, though. Yeah, I absolutely love it. I was like, what a genius move. What? That's so clever. But back with this challenge in the original Chemical Plant Zone, Dean is up first and he grabs a few rings before running off. He loses them briefly, but then manages to get a few back. He's clearly got a route in mind, and while he loses some time to a misstep jump, he catches it back up a bit with a few speed boosts and finds himself in the aforementioned network of tubes. He emerges, he dodges a few enemies and hazards, he crosses the line at one minute exactly. Respectable time? It's not a bad time, to be honest. It's, I mean, there were a couple of errors that he made along the way, particularly like like the lad last week, he gets kind of caught on ramps a little bit. But it's not the worst run, really. And like doing it a minute is pretty solid. I'll be honest, I doubt I could do better. I'm sure you could. Oh, thanks, mate. And I'm sure Adam could if he's listening <laughs> hopefully he won't need to track down a copy of this as he's been searching for a copy of tasmania or so i hear what can i say i'm weak at the knees don't <laughs> it wasn't my aftership but anyway that run left jane weak at the knees uh, but dominic's curious if that was actually just his aftershave i mean if you're wearing chloroform as an aftershave sure Maybe he's wearing some of the sauces that Auntie Marisha's cooking up as aftershave because you know what? It'll probably do the same amount of job. And to show how solid Dean's run was, Paul is way better at this game and he is speeding through this. And like he, like He's the only player so far we've seen as well that uses the actual spin dash. So rather than just trying to move at a quicker pace, he just goes, no, no, down, hit the jump button a few times and I'll speed off myself. And he even does it when he's waiting for a platform to move down, which I thought was a really, really clever move. And he only really makes one mistake during this run. But Dominic Diamond is so distracted talking about Tony Hart during this challenge that he almost misses the fact that Paul finishes the stage. He's there going like, Tony Hart's got the two. Oh my God, he's finished. Oh, he's hit the speed brush. Thanks, Tony Hart used to have a couple of them, I think, <laughs> in his back room. Into the tunnel. He's at the tunnel. I don't know if you've noticed Tony Hart now. He's got two women helping him out now. He doesn't have Mr. Bennett. That guy that used to come out along with the old Mac. And it's, it's a change for the better. It certainly is. I reckon he thought that it would be a lot closer than it actually was. So he looked at the time and he thought, oh, I've still got a good 20 seconds at this point before he's getting close to the finish. Yeah, speed brushes like Tony Hart used to have in the back room. Did you know he's got two female assistants now? What happened to the old man in the dirty raincoat? And, oh, 48 seconds, he's crossed the finish line. Um... Uh... Paul wins. And that's what I mean. It's like Dean's run wasn't terrible because he got a minute. And, you know, Paul's way better and was only 12 seconds faster. This isn't last week where, you know, the lad was twice as quick as the other one was. This was closer. I mean, it's still not like close, close, but it was closer at least. And I'll be honest, when he actually crosses the line at that time, he actually looks a bit surprised that he got there that quickly. He's thrilled. He's thrilled that he won. He's got some bragging rights. Right, turning to you first now, Dean. Dean, I th we both thought one minute was an excellent time. Uh, what, what went wrong? Uh, nothing went wrong. I just think he was lucky. I don't know. You cheated a bit. I just think there's uh, something he doesn't know. Well, you've got to answer those accusations, heinous as they are. The best man won. There's the evidence. So how, how come you managed to get quicker? We thought you were actually slower at one stage. There's various routes through the level, and it's just picking the right one and knowing what's coming ahead of you. 
and you certainly did pick it well. Paul, the big news is you're coming back for next week's final against Dave Goodyear of Mega Drive Advanced Gaming. How do you think you'll do then? I'll prove that I'm the best. But after the challenge, Dom asked Dean what went wrong and Dean's immediately in there saying, well, he got lucky and maybe cheated a little bit. <laughs> what, by knowing how to use a spin dash just because he's paying attention to advancements made in the game? Dom says that Paul has to answer these heinous accusations and Paul just shrugs it off and says, best man won, there's the evidence. Smooth. I picked the right route. And next week he's going to prove that he's the best because we've got a, the final of this Sonic 2 challenge next week on the show. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. This has been a fun little three-week challenge. Much as it pains me to leave you, the dinner gong brings another show hurtling to a close. Auntie Manisha's done some booyah bass tonight. While we go and munch on that, I'll bid you good night. i tell you what's not fun is the sound of booyah bass. It's for tea tonight. Now, they say they're going to go and chew on it, which worries me because booyah bass is a soup. Yes. If your soup is chewy... You've got problems. Soup should not be served in slices. No, but my wife did once make me a soup that I could spread. What kind of soup was <laughs> it? I can't remember now, but we bring it, I bring it up every now and again because we do think it's very funny. But it's the one time she hasn't made soup since, but she did make soup for me that was very tasty, but I could spread it on the piece of bread that I had. There is a danger, I think, because, you know, we love talking about culinary stuff on here as well. But there is the danger, I think, if you do a vegetable, potato or anything starchy based, that you can actually thicken it up to almost sauce levels rather than soup. Exactly. And so I suspect that's what happened. If too much starch comes out of the potatoes, it basically acts like corn flour. People come for the retro game chat. They stay for the culinary stories. Mate, we need to break out more flan action. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but that is going to do us for Series 2, Episode 23 of Games Master. Ash, what did you make of it? I really liked last week's episode, and I'd have liked this week's episode even more. It's got three great challenges. It's got a celebrity that is vicious and legitimately good at the game. It's got an amazing magazine challenge. It's got a really nice first challenge. It's got a great review of an amazing groundbreaking game in Star Fox. And then there's this beautiful ice cream sundae and someone curls out a shit on top with that feature. It soured the episode for me. <laughs> We talked last week about the Gaming Grannies segment and saying like that's what Games Masters should kind of be doing, that sort of more irreverence feature content for their magazine show. That feels like more of what they want to be doing. And it really, this CD feature shows why they should be doing more stuff like uh, the Gaming Grannies than this. I think this CD feature could have worked really well if they'd gotten someone to talk to them that knew what they were doing Basically, you could have had someone go on there and explain, okay, CD-ROM is coming in. This is what floppy disks can do. This is what cartridges can do. This is the advantages that CD-ROM can have. These are the pros. These are the cons. These are the consoles. I didn't think there were many features that could make that Amiga versus Acorn versus Atari piece look good. <laughs> but this does it. This makes the Sega marketing piece look good. Yeah. It's not the best feature this show has done. Without this feature, this episode would have been solidly in the 90s. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But as it is, 85. I'm going higher. I'm going at 88. In fact, actually, no, I'm going to go 89. I'm going to bump it up because I... Mostly for the Star Fox review. Like, that was a genuinely thrilling moment of watching this show. And, like, you know, starting back in Series 1, way back when, earlier in this year... 
and then getting to this point now and it's like oh my god we're at star fox territory now that was genuinely really exciting for me and i enjoyed all three challenges i loved the final challenge with and it's got a decent enough consultation zone with you know some proper shade being thrown at that kid that wanted to win at streets of rage 2 it, the CD segment, I mean, it angered you a lot more than it angered me. Like for me, it, this was just another fluff piece that, that's kind of filling out the runtime. But the lad was well boring. But it did make me think, oh, these mega CDs around the corner. That's quite exciting. They mention it at the beginning, but then they never mention it again. No, no. It's just, it's another bad feature on this show and it's funny as well because we had a run of this show where we didn't have any features at all like we had like three weeks where there were no features we were like where are all the features going like it's january i suppose it's just there's not a lot to talk about i kind of wish they just didn't bother they may as well just not bother this week leave this to bad influence yeah although i tell you what i don't think bad influence would have let a piece go out that (laughs) had this many factual inaccuracies because it is nonsense so i was thinking of going to 90 percent for it based really off the star fox stuff alone but i am going to go to 89 i'm going to take off a percentage not for that cd feature but because i just felt really bad for that kid being battered in the celebrity challenge he knew what he signed himself up for But that is going to do it for us. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, Please do give us a subscribe if you haven't already and leave a little rating and review. It helps us get noticed in those podcast feeds. And if you want to get in touch, we are feedback at underconsultation.com and we're on Twitter at underconsolepod and on Instagram at under.console. And you can join us over on our Discord where there is chatter going on right now. I've no idea what it's about apart from apparently people discussing whether or not we should be drinking coffee at this hour because we are at the end of a triple header. We are indeed, yes. It's half past ten in the evening we're recording this one. Is this the latest we've ever recorded? I think it might be. I think it might be because we, yeah, even when our old studio days, I think we were out of the studio by 10 if we'd have done a double header i think it's because we've done two and a half episodes yeah two and a half episodes but you know what i actually don't feel as tired as i thought i would no i'm all right i've got some peanuts here i'm doing okay oh quality ready salted uh dry roasted oh classy do you know what else is classy what patreon.com forward slash under console pod because if you head on over there you can get next week's episode one week early with no ads at the five pound level and if you're at any of those pound levels you're going to get our bonus episode review of the crystal maze and at the 10 pound level you do get our super sweet merch pack ash when you tell them what's in it our super sweet merch pack is so smooth it's almost as smooth as that link that luke just <laughs> did to get us into talking about patreon but you get a mug you get stickers you get badges, you get pogs, supplies are limited, you get retro sweeties, and you get a £5 discount off our first Under Console t-shirt, which is on sale now at underconsultation.com. Supplies in this first run are limited, so don't snooze on it. Absolutely, and a shout out to those £10 backers, Phil, Simon, Nick, Sean, Adam, Adam, Cliff, Rich, Gordon, William and Misha. Thank you all so, so much, you guys rule. Every single person that listens to this show is fantabulous and we love every single one of you. And we will see you in seven days' time for the finals of the Sonic the Hedgehog 2 Challenge. Can't wait. Good night, everybody. Take care.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.